You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This week on the podcast, another extra special guest from the world of private markets. The Partners Group is probably the largest private equity firm you've never heard of, perhaps because they were originally headquartered in Zug, Switzerland. They're the largest listed buyout firm in Europe. They also have headquarters here in the U.S., in Colorado. They are decidedly not your typical private equity firm, not your typical Wall Street firm. Uh, They have a very thoughtful approach and a very long-term approach uh, to making investments in the private markets. Uh, I found David Layton, CEO of the firm, to be very thoughtful and very much different in how he thinks about risk, reward, liquidity, uh, various market sectors, processes, just the, the whole gestalt of We are a steward of capital with our clients, and we are aligned with those clients. It was really a a fascinating conversation. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. With no further ado, the CEO of Partners Group, David Layton. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is David Layton. He is the chief executive officer of the Partners Group, which is Europe's biggest listed private equity and buyout firm with a market cap of about $25 billion. They run over $135 billion in assets. Uh, David is on the Global Investment Committee. He leads the executive team. Previously, he headed the firm's private equity business. Uh, He has been with the firm his entire career. David Layton, welcome to Bloomberg. It's a pleasure to be here. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. That's kind of unusual these days. You went straight to the partners group after you got a, a bachelor's in finance from Brigham Young University uh, and the Marriott School of Management, and you've stayed there your entire career. Seems kind of rare these days. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, um, I found partners group out of school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually running the investment banking club at uh, BYU and, um, you know, thought I was interested in that, interested in going to Wall Street. I was, I was, uh, I was tentatively committed to, to, to go to Lehman Brothers. And there was a 
uh, one of the partners group founders that was on campus. Mm-hmm. And I went to convince him why he should come and be a part of what was called the investment banking boot camp that we were doing at the time to get uh, students ready to go to Wall Street and do their interviews, etc. And I went to pitch this asset management guy on why he should come be a part of that uh, process. Uh-oh, he jujitsu'd And you, uh, he right? jujitsu'd me, and he ended up, um, we ended up talking, and uh, he was just this fascinating, bigger-than-life personality, and, um, and we ended up hitting it off. And, uh, and and I got linked up with Partners Group directly out of school. Yeah. Huh. That, that's really intriguing. You joined as an analyst? That's I, where you began? I joined as an analyst. I got an offer to Partners Group's New York office, mm-hmm. and that's where I thought I was going. Um, and then I got a call, not that long before I was supposed to start, by one of the partners there who said, wait a second, Dave, you're not going to New York. He said, you're coming to Switzerland no for like a year, maybe three years until I tell you you're ready to go to New York. Wow. He said, how can you go join us in that market right. before you know anything about us, right? How can you represent us in that market before you know anything about us? Um, uh, that must have been exciting was, right that, out of college, right? And so it was, I hooked up the phone and had an interesting conversation with my wife uh, about uh, going to Switzerland, but that was the firm's philosophy at the time. It Uh was, Switzerland was the center of gravity. Um, That's where the cultural um, ethos was kind of formed and- uh, Zug, uh, you you went to uh, Zug, Switzerland. Zug, Switzerland. And, um, And in that environment, you know, through proximity, to the firm's founders, people kind of get culturally integrated, and you, then you went to different uh, offices from there. Do you speak Swiss or German or French? Um, I took uh, some some German lessons before I went there, and then I found out the Swiss German is a little different, <laughs> and I didn't end up uh, very different, uh, isn't it? It's a little different. Yeah. It's a little different. So, so, but everybody there speaks English. Everybody there speaks English. I was in an English-speaking environment from sunup to sundown. Right. It was very dynamic. My wife actually picked up more German than I did because she was out in the community. Right. Uh, but in uh, in our no context, choice. we had a we had an English-speaking environment huh. where, uh, in the office. So, so how does one get from analyst in Zug, Switzerland, to CEO in Colorado? Yeah. So when I started, after a couple of days, um, my wife asked me, "How do you like your boss?" Uh, and I told her, look, I don't know how to answer that question. I have 12 people <laughs> right. that tell me what to do. Bosses. It's that, that was the, I was just the youngest, I was, I think I was the youngest person that they'd ever hired wow. up until that point. And so I was just kind of sweeping up, uh, uh, and, and doing whatever needed to be done. And it was so much fun working with different people in different uh, groups. And I got a lot of good experience doing that. So I was, uh, uh, you know, when the firm launched its debt business, I was the analyst uh, uh, putting together some of the credit analysis on the first couple of uh, uh-huh. loans that we had uh, written at the time. Um, we had uh, a group that was doing small growth capital investments in Germany and Switzerland at the time, um, uh, fun doing secondaries and, and funds. And, and the senior people were more specialized, but as young people, we we're just getting a very dynamic set of experiences. And it was a lot of, a lot of fun. And um, it sounds like a baptism by fire. You're just thrown right into the thick of it. It was a baptism by fire in a very entrepreneurial culture. And that very much aligned with who I was and what I was interested in, um, you gain a lot of experience fast. And um, so from there, I went to New York 
uh, helped to build up the firm's uh, uh, business in the Americas. Uh, we were really transitioning from back then outsourcing a lot of the investment content that we had done with to, to other managers to bring a lot of that in-house. Mm-hmm. And I helped to drive a lot of that in the Americas early on. And, um, and then in 2016, we were thinking a little bit more strategically about our business in the Americas. And I championed this project to open up a headquarters for the firm in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And uh, away from and Wall Street. Away from Wall, intentionally away yes. from Wall Street. And, and that's, that's a part of the partners group secret of success, I do think. A lot of people ask us how we've been so successful in terms of innovating our business and evolving our business uh, over time. And I think being in Zoog early on helped with that. Huh. I was talking to one of our founders. He said, look, a lot of people think we're in Zoog for tax reasons. He said, we're here because this is where my mother lived. This is where <laughs> I wanted to spend my time and live my life. And isn't that how private equity locates its headquarters? <laughs> it's like, where's mom? Great. Set up shop exactly. over there. And, and are there are there that much tax advantages to be in Switzerland if you're operating throughout Europe? Um I mean, it's, it's not pro- like it's, Monaco or Liechtenstein. No, or. it's not like that. Um, but it, it actually had nothing to do, I don't think, with the origins. It, it was right. all about this is where he wanted to live his life, and his founders agreed. And um, what that meant is that everybody that joined Partners Group at that time wasn't just a butt in a seat in a capital market changing jobs. They were moving their family somewhere. and becoming be- And becoming a part of something. Right. And that has created this very tight culture uh, within our organization. We said, let's do the same thing in the Americas. Let's find a place where our people genuinely want to live their life and raise their babies and make that the uh, the center of, of our system. We decided to do that in Colorado. So, so that's interesting because um, Colorado, obviously, in the Rockies, very, yep. Zug is very much a... Uh, you know, how far are you from from the big ski resorts? That's a lakeside town. Some of the photos I saw Zug, look yeah. quite charming. What was life like in Zug? And any coincidence that Colorado is about as close as you're going to get to Switzerland in the U.S.? No, you're you're in close proximity to the mountains there. Mm-hmm. It is an ideal it idyllic setting there in the postcard in the postcard setting uh, there in Zug. Very charming. Um, but you're on your own a little bit as it relates to your ability to plug into the the, the broader financial community, right? Right. So every client that we have, every asset that we own, is a result of somebody getting on an airplane and building right. a relationship. It's created a culture being there where we don't expect anything to come to us. We are an outbound-driven firm, hmm. right? We're a firm that identifies opportunity, and we hustle and get in front of it. And so, yes, beautiful setting um, there in the uh, in the Alps. Yes, that did inform our uh, our choice uh, with regards to location. Being in the mountains was important to us. Hmm. Uh, we wanted to to have that continuity of culture, if that makes sense. And and how does the business split between Switzerland and and U.S. Are, are they the same types of business, just different geographies? What is what is the division from from Colorado to Zug? Yeah, we are a global firm. Uh, our teams, many of our teams, are organized on a global basis. Um, we have um, most of our clients from Europe. Um, mm-hmm. That's our biggest market, and most of our investment activity 
is in the Americas. Um, it's huh. been about 55% of our uh, investments that we've made are in the US. And that is an evolution. That It hasn't always been the case. You know, A lot of people think of us as disproportionately European or Swiss, mm-hmm. and they're surprised to learn that over the last decade, we have invested most of our firm's capital into the US market. This is a big market, and, important market. For and us. when you look at the economy for the past decade, or at least as judged by the public markets, Europe seems to have been a little sleepy the past decade. The U.S. was where all the action was. Yeah, Is that true in private markets as well as public markets? Well, we have a global relative value approach to investing, which means that our firm will hold up an investment opportunity from the U.S. alongside opportunities from Europe, alongside opportunities from Asia, and we will fight about where we see the best relative value. Mm -hmm. And uh, as indicated by the mix that I just described, we have found better relative value in the U.S. markets. Not just about activity, but it's about relative value. Uh, Now, we have still been active in Europe. Um, We're actually bringing all of our investors to Vienna in just a couple of months, uh, our, our biggest investors for an investor conference. Um, and I want to bring them to the most European of cities to send a reminder that even though there's a lot of people that are down on Europe at the moment, um, that's when a long-term investor, uh, and that's where private markets, I think, can take a long-term perspective and continue to find opportunities when others aren't looking. So uh, I'm intrigued by the concept of relative value looking at it globally ge- by geography, how much is it the value of the company you're investing in? How much is the prospective market size, as well as how robust local economy is? And by local, I mean Asia, Europe, or US. Yeah. Um, I would say that this has evolved over the last decades. Um, So it used to be within private markets that you would find a good business apply quite a bit of leverage to it, at least in the private equity business, and um, and be able to make a pretty good return by buying good, solid businesses as they are. That has changed. Leverage mm-hmm. levels have come down materially. You're investing majority equity in uh, most of the transactions that are occurring today. And it's all about the future. It's huh. all about what are this company's prospects? How are you going to steer this company to be able to maintain its market position? What can we do with this business uh, over the coming years? Um, so it's much more about potential and, and how you can drive market-leading uh, strategies than it is necessarily about just buying a good business and leveraging it up. So, so we're going to talk a little more about Partners Group in a bit, but I want to stay with the investments. You guys seem to be very long-term. You're not just buying something, putting a fresh coat of paint, and then flipping it. You buy companies to run them and manage them for the long haul. Tell us a little bit about um, the giant portfolio uh, of companies you guys are are managing. Yeah, so we manage a portfolio of uh, several dozen companies. When you add together all of our portfolio companies, it's effectively a $100 billion enterprise wow. when you add all of our companies uh, together across multiple sectors, and it's global in terms of its breadth and scope. And um, Quite a few employees also. Uh, yeah, so if you, if you look at our, our business, we have about 1,800 people at the management company, and then across our portfolio, over 200,000 employees of our various uh, portfolio companies. So we are um, a... Uh, a large 
owner of assets. And I think we, we take that stewardship very, very seriously. Um, that's one of the reasons why we really haven't identified ourselves as a financial firm or as a money management firm. Uh, that's not the, the proper lens through which to view Partners Group. I think we are very much an owner of assets, we're a builder of businesses, and we're a steward uh, of these uh, these companies, and uh, and we take that very seriously. So I wouldn't be surprised in the future if you didn't look at us and we looked more like an industrial conglomerate. That's where I was than like go. A, like a private equity firm. Huh, that's really interesting. You sit on the board of directors on a number of portfolio companies. Yep. Tell us a little bit about what that experience is like. You own them, but yet you they manage themselves, and you guys are involved in that. How does that operate? It sounds like there's a lot of independence amongst all these different holdings. Um, if you think about the role that we play as owners, um, it is a real responsibility that we have to develop these companies over time. The role of the board years ago maybe wasn't that critical or wasn't that important. Today, it is absolutely paramount to your success as an investor. And so we are very, very focused on making our boards the center of vision and strategy and accountability. Um, Our board members work more intensively with our companies, have a a greater time commitment than most board members are used to. This is not come together once a quarter, eat chicken dinner and rubber stamp a couple of things, but this is really roll up your sleeves and have a commitment to to helping to chart uh, uh, the appropriate path moving forward. And I have always taken that that stewardship very, very seriously and and that's the culture that we're creating is uh, to, to take those board assignments uh, very seriously. Yes, there is a lot of, um, of steering, of individual strategy that goes on in the portfolio companies. At the same time, Partners Group is developing a, a business system that we are looking to apply across our portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. We're looking to create a culture that is similar with regards to how we set strategy, with regards to how we create accountability on that strategy, with regards to how our boards get involved in driving that strategy. Um, and that's something that we think is essential to differentiation uh, in the future. Hmm. Re- really interesting. You're headquartered in Colorado. How often do you get back to Switzerland? I'm in Switzerland about a week a month. Usually. Oh, really? That yep. much? Wow. Yep. That's a lot of travel from Colorado. That's a lot of travel. Yep. That comes with the territory. Quite quite interesting. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So let's talk a little bit uh, about the firm. Uh, it has a market cap over $25 billion. That's bigger than Credit Suisse, which means you're a pretty substantial entity. Uh, tell us a little bit about the corporate culture, which is decidedly different than the typical Wall Street bank. Yeah. First, let me put into context um, some of our views with regards to how our industry is evolving, and that'll help uh, to, to inform some of the decisions that we've made with regards to how to set our, our company culture. Um, the private markets uh, is not a young industry necessarily. We've been around for, for 40 years. Um, but the skills, the talents, the attributes that allowed people to be successful in this industry historically are not necessarily the attributes that are going to be successful in propelling firms in the future. Uh, if you think about the way private markets functioned 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, people would, with a transactional skill set, provide access into an inefficient asset class, mm -hmm. right? They would do that by buying and selling things, and they were able to make a good living doing that. Um, and that this transactional skill set is something that was praised. Um, you'll hear uh, teams call themselves deal teams. You'll call individuals call themselves deal professionals. And this deal side of the business is really what was emphasized. Now, I you, you bring that up. I, I have to ask a question. I, I kind of read a shocking thing. You guys ban the word deal from yeah. the company. Yeah. Uh, explain that. It fits into context. It's because the, the, the things that made people successful, that deal doing mindset, is not the things that are going to make us successful in the future. Me when, meaning when, the overemphasis on transactional, drop a ticket, get the next trade in, flip it, as opposed to building something. Exactly. Our business is no longer about doing deals and providing access. It's about building businesses, and so um, we don't want to um, we don't want to uh, put too much emphasis on the transactional side of things. We think that's been overdone historically. We really want to emphasize the rolling up your sleeves. Um, uh, uh, strategy setting, uh, building businesses side of things. And because of that, we've, uh, we've asked our people to change their terminology. Uh, we've uh, done things like change our job titles. We don't have senior vice presidents, you know, 25-year-old senior vice presidents <laughs> running around anymore. Right. Uh, That's uh, the we, entry-level position, senior <laughs> vice president. We've, we've, cha up. we've changed that. Uh, that's, a, again, a reference to kind of Wall Street culture. And that made sense maybe years ago when you had to sound important on the phone. Uh, but in today's environment, we don't think it's, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. And so the culture that we're creating is a more industrial culture focused on rolling up your sleeves and building businesses. Uh, and that's reflective of, of we think, the environment uh, moving forward. So, so now I understand why your headquarters in Colorado has a sign on the wall that says, this is not Wall Street. Yeah. Uh, so not only are you locating the firm 2,000 miles yeah. away from, from Wall Street, you are making a very conscious effort to behave very differently. And, um, and, and by the way, Barry, when you walk through the door, mm -hmm. it's immediately apparent to you. Because when you walk through that, 
that that uh, office in Colorado. It is brick, steel, stone. We have built a more industrial business building feel that mm-hmm. is in direct contrast to, uh, to to what you you see in most places uh, within our industry. So, so where are you in Colorado? So we're just outside of Boulder in mm-hmm. a town called Broomfield. Oh, really interesting. Yeah. So you are nowhere near Vale or or some of the shishier parts of Colorado. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, we're down the mountain, um, from, which is a good uh, three hours, right? <laughs> depending on uh, the weather. Depending on the, the weather and the yeah. traffic, yeah. Uh, it can be a be a bit. Um, but let let me tell you something. When we first decided to move to Colorado. Um, uh, it was, you know, in a way, um, a part of this whole move um, away from Wall Street, um, create an environment that's somewhat similar to the the Zug, you know, culture that we came from. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, we, we talked a little bit about being in Zug. Uh, one of our founders grabbed me one time and said, hey, um, why don't you figure out where you want to live your life and see if people want to move there also, right, and follow you and... and uh, did you have any prior nexus with with Colorado, or was this just, hey, big country, let's go here? It, um, it's just a fantastic environment, mm-hmm. uh, and the and the people that are there um, are so happy. It's the one of the highest quality <laughs> of life uh, uh, anywhere um, uh, that you'll find, and I think that makes a difference, right? Uh, when we first opened up, people were kind of scratching their heads, what are these guys doing? Today, we get more resumes into our Colorado office than our next six offices combined. Wow. It really has set us apart and is something that's quite unique. And it's also uh, directly in line with what we've been talking about. It's it's different from Wall Street. It, uh, it creates an environment for us where we can be uh, independent thinkers, and that, uh, that so, really works. So let's, let's drill down into that a little bit. I was reading about the firm and its investment process, and it seems like you guys can spend as long as five years studying a company yep. before you make an acquisition. Whereas in most of finance, it's competitive, and sometimes you need to make a decision now or someone else is going to outbid you. How do you go about kicking the tires of a company for three or four or five years. That seems to be inordinately lengthy compared to the way traditional finance operates. Yeah. When I came up in the industry, when a company would come up for sale, we would have four or five months to research that business and to do due diligence and to meet the management team and to build our models. And that's enough time to get to know a space and to get to know a sector, um, and to uh, get to know a company, and decide if you want to make a, an investment or not. With the competition that's increased within our space, it's more like four, five, six weeks that mm-hmm. you need to make that decision, okay? And you just can't do the type of work that you need to right. do to write a large check in four, five, six weeks, uh, and to, to buy an entire company. And so uh, we have really put emphasis to our team on doing work well before a company sale process to make sure that when that company comes up for sale, that we are expert on that space, we're expert on that subsector, um, and uh, we're doing confirmatory work. We're not starting from scratch. That's something that's uh, really emphasized within our culture. And, um, you know, if you think about the current environment, right, 
rates have changed. For sure. Leverage levels have changed. And that means there's a couple hundred basis points of returns that's come out of our industry if you're just doing things the same way. Right. So you need to be investing in a different profile of business. You can't just hope to lever up a good company and generate a return that way. Today, you have to find sectors that are transforming, right? Businesses that we can transform through active ownership in order to generate the same type of returns that have happened. And we think that that's going to be a, um, a critical part uh, moving forward. So we put all of our emphasis today um, from a sourcing and origination perspective around um, uh, around thematic work. That's so a big topic. We're going to talk a little more about sectors later. Now I have to ask, you, you mentioned uh, the the time horizon for evaluating companies and the competitions. Your, your size puts you in the same uh, league as private equity firms like Blackstone and Aries. How often are you bumping into competition when you're kicking the tires on a company for a couple of years when those guys tend to write a check after eight weeks. Yeah. I often look at the public markets and I'm a little green with envy sometimes, to be honest, because in the public markets, you find a sector that you like, you find a company that you like, you hit the buy button and you create that exposure mm -hmm. for yourself or your clients. In the private markets, you find a sector that you like, you do your research, you find a company that you like, you have to wait for years until an event comes up, and then there's only one firm that's allowed to create that exposure, okay? <laughs> and you have to go up against some of the most aggressive, smart individuals that you will ever come across in your life, and you have to differentiate yourself. And Partners Group has, I think, uh, done a good job of winning more than its fair share of transactions in the market by being a differentiated kind of firm a differentiated kind of owner, um, uh, one that's a true partner to industry, a partner for growth, and uh, and that's helped to distinguish us against some pretty stiff competition. Not, not a coincidence that you're named Partners Group. That didn't happen by accident. No, not by accident at all. Huh. So, so let's talk a little bit about some of your closed-end funds. Um, typically, uh, most private equity or buyout funds tend to be a quarter million dollars or more. You have a fund that requires a minimum investment of only $50,000. Tell us the thinking behind making access to this sort of investing um, easier for people who, who might not have a quarter million dollars lying around. Yeah. So if you're an institution investing $100 billion today, or $50 billion, or $10 billion, private markets is already a big part of your portfolio. But for individuals, historically, there have not been great options to invest into private uh, companies. Uh, it's been one of the best performing asset classes for decades. And, um, and there's a real democratization mm -hmm. of access to private markets. And we're one of the firms that's been leading that. Look, our parents all had pension funds. Mm -hmm. Our kids are all going to have 401ks. Uh, and so right. the... The, the sources of funds for our industry is going to change as a result of that. It's been primarily pension, historically. It's been a lot of insurance um, and that sort of thing. And the future is private 
individuals and uh, and and we think uh, defined contribution programs, and we're a firm that is really cutting edge and leading with regards to providing the types of solutions that those type of clients are looking so, for. So when you're offering a fund to a smaller investor, a $50,000 investor, how does the ownership within what those folks invest in, how does that compare to what Partners Group at large investing yeah. is it is it a particular strategy or a multi-strat approach how do you how do you think about that yeah so our clients get access to all of our investment content that that particular fund is targeting uh, we have been really focused as a firm on not creating silos, mm-hmm. not having one team that just works for this particular financial product and this team that works for this financial product. But all of our investment professionals work for all of our clients collectively, mm-hmm. and that gives us the ability to create a vehicle, uh, for example, for an individual client, a bespoke solution for an individual client, or a structure for a group of like investors, like you know private clients, and have them participate in the exact same investment content mm-hmm. that our other large uh, investors get access to. And so that vehicle, it's you don't have to worry about having the A team on the big institutional money and the B team on the retail right. money, which is something that some people do worry about. Our investors get equal access to the opportunities that uh, that our global team so is So in other words, I'm not liquid for a billion dollars. I don't, I don't remember where I... <laughs> I left that. So even if I don't have a billion, I could still participate similarly to an endowment that does have a billion dollars. Yep. That's that, the, uh, and, and I think that's the future. You know, limited partnerships um, that have been the traditional structure that our industry have used, these are archaic structures, right? They were innovated in the 1970s and 80s as a tool for individual wealth creation. And they have been jerry-rigged effectively to now manage $10 trillion of assets, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty incredible. That's they are, a lot of money. They are not the future, right? The future is, we think, vehicles that have some structure to them mm-hmm. that uh, that allows for easier access. And so when you talk this. about $10 trillion, you have discussed, you think this is going to end up being a $30 trillion marketplace. Yeah. So if there's $10 trillion and you believe it's structured in a way that won't work for the average investor, where is the next $20 trillion going to come from? Is it going to be institutional? Is it going to be individuals, some combination? Where do you see the growth here? Yeah, it's going to be some combination, but individual investors and defined contribution coming online more fully is certainly um, an element of that. Um, You know, our industry has been growing for a long period of time. Um, It has uh, grown across different rates environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and we're big believers that it will continue to uh, uh, to grow um, and uh, and that this is going to be an industry that uh, continues to benefit from from some of the tailwinds that, uh, that that do exist. So I'm surprised to learn you guys acquired Breitling, the big watch company. Tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that acquisition. Yeah. Uh, Breitling, I think, is one of the coolest Swiss watch companies ever uh, with its aviation heritage and the partnerships that it's done in in the automotive space and, and diving and space. It's It's got such an incredible heritage and we're really happy to be a part of it. Um, I uh, saw a pistachio dial 
chronograph that they put out that was just unique and gorgeous, really yeah, special. Yeah, no, they, I mean, the, the innovation at that company today is really, really incredible. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people who kind of say, what are you doing investing into a consumer business? Right. In it's an environment, a crazy competitive it's, one, it's, too. In an environment like this, and that's a business you know, growing at 25% last huh. year. Uh, it's got enormous potential in the, uh, in the Asian and, and U.S. markets where it's, mm-hmm. it's growing really, really strong. And, um, and uh, you know, people think of it as a very masculine company, but its, it's female segment is uh, has a tremendous amount of potential, and with some of the innovation that they're driving, with some of those colors, et cetera, mm-hmm. that you're talking about, it's a, a lot of accessory, potential. Not a timepiece. Uh, a lot of potential. Oh, it's a timepiece. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mechanics are for sure are fantastic. Um, but but it's a fashion accessory right. as well. It's a piece of jewelry. It's yeah. a fashion accessory. It's more than just telling time. Is perhaps a better way to describe it. Yeah, and so we're really excited about that. Uh, that investment and that partnership. Quite, quite interesting. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. There are some quotes of yours that I I really like and I have to ask you about, starting with, there is a Darwinian struggle ahead for private markets. Tell us why you believe that is the case. The world has changed, right? We are in a new rate environment, and many of the tailwinds that have allowed many firms to be successful and generate strong returns have turned into headwinds. Um, and, uh, and, and we had a long period of cheap capital and, and high amounts free, of free capital, free capital <laughs> essentially, and, and large amounts of leverage being available. That was a tailwind. We had a long period of globalization, right, where we could take costs out of our portfolio companies, take them out into a global marketplace and improve margins, uh, strong macro growth environment. And many of those um, factors have, have, have changed, and uh, some of them have even turned into headwinds. And so um, as a result of that, the formula for success that I think many of these more transactionally oriented firms are pursuing, we think is going to be challenged. And, uh, and as a result of that, uh, you, this, this environment that we're in is going to initiate a period of natural selection whereby the strong firms will get stronger 
and the weak firms will uh, will struggle uh, and struggle to raise new capital. And uh, this isn't dissimilar from what's happened in prior eras within the financial services sector. I mean, if you think about the public markets in the 80s, right? Mm -hmm. You had uh, stockbrokers that were driving Ferraris, right? And the value system was built around transactions and transactional skill sets then as well, right? It was an inefficient market. People would get their newspapers and read their ticker. They would talk to their broker with no idea of where the market actually right. was at that moment. And and the, the whole incentive system for, for uh for the industry, the public markets at that time was around how much transaction volume can you generate in an inefficient market. Think about 10 years later, right? It wasn't about individuals generating transaction volume. It was about which institutions can build something that's truly differentiated, a platform with a different way to engage with clients and have a differentiated client engagement model. And we think that uh, you know, the private markets may very well follow a similar path. And, uh, and the values of our industry need to shift from individuals generating transactions, um, and that being where the emphasis is, towards platforms that are building something truly differentiated. So there's another quote of yours which I suspect could be related to the Darwinian struggle, which is, it's never been more expensive to be naive. Hmm. Explain that, because that's quite a loaded sentence. Whether we're talking about investors or uh, various firms, it's always expensive to be naive, and you're saying it's as bad as it ever gets right here. Well, um, you know, the generalist investor model, where you look for interesting businesses and, you know, invest in them, you know, uh, out of a, a generalist perspective, is tough. It's gonna be tough, uh, we think, for a long time. Um, uh, if you think about what is going to differentiate firms in the future, we think it's going to be having a real perspective on the way an industry is going to move and how it's going to evolve. There's so much digital transformation occurring, so much disruption occurring, that if you invest into a space, uh, not being a specialist in that area, we think it's really tough. Our firm is putting a tremendous amount of emphasis on thematic research. We want our people to be deep, as we talked about before, spend a couple of years on a space uh, before ultimately investing into that space to make sure that they understand how that market's gonna evolve, who the winners likely are going to be, and we're putting our emphasis not on what's the size of the business today, but we put our emphasis around uh, which company is likely to be a market leader four, five, six years from now in that particular space. And that takes work. That takes research. So you're looking out five years. Uh, that means that sectors that are doing well today, you may have been thinking about five years ago, pre-pandemic. Uh, tell us what sectors today seem to be coming into their own and what other sectors are beginning to look uh, intriguing. Yeah, and the COVID environment has actually accelerated some of those themes that we were thinking about and have been thinking about for a long time. So the digital, trans the digital payment space, for example, mm -hmm. that's not a new topic, right? There's been a transition to digital payment for a long period of time, but COVID helped to accelerate that. And so uh, we invested into one of Europe's largest uh, electronic toll collection companies. Here in New York, you huh. have 
you have Easy Pass, right. and in other other markets, there's Sun Pass and other things like that. Uh, we invested into Europe's largest um, uh, electronic toll collection company, and that's an example of a trend that we were watching for a long time. And then COVID helped to really accelerate that. And, and, and I like people the way really stopped using cash, let me tell you, during that period I, of time. I, I yeah. like the way you phrased it because a lot of the things that uh, have become very large existed long before COVID, but they were kind of on the fr- I just signed a whole bunch of bank docs uh, through DocuSign on my laptop. That's been around forever, but it's ubiquitous now. Like, Absolutely. wait. You want me to FedEx you documents to get a wet signature on it and then have the other eight people sign it? And uh, that sort of stuff it is... It feels archaic, it, but just three years ago we were doing that. But yeah. right, I, and, and the ability to do things... Um, you, When I launched my firm, it, me and my partners, we were national, so we were always in the cloud and we were always virtual. I, I, I found the, the pandemic kind of amusing for... Lots of people discovered uh, video chat and screen sharing. All this technology is a decade old. How do you get ahead of a curve when suddenly you have a two-year just rush into that space? How do you separate the winners from the also-rans? Yeah, um, it's, it's through a lot of work. It's through a lot of research, and it's by having people that specialize in that particular area. It's about surrounding yourself with not special, not not generalist consultants that come in and tell you this market is big and growing. Right? We want we want our teams to engage with organizations um, that. Uh, uh, that are specialized, or better yet, individuals that have been running companies in those spaces mm-hmm. and that have been there and done that and know where the bodies are buried. Uh, those are the people that we want to align with as we're going into due diligence. We want to, you know, work with them and have them join the boards of our companies. And and um, and so it comes by surrounding yourself with the right people and the right kind of people. Um, as uh, as you go into researching these type of businesses, so so you mentioned earlier the the marketplace is changing. What was tailwinds very often today are headwinds, which raises the uh, important question: How important are private markets to the economy relative to public markets? In fact, you had suggested public markets decoupled from the real economy, and now it's all about what's private. Well, I wouldn't say it's all about what's private, but there has clearly been an evolution that a lot of people haven't been fully conscious of. It's been a shift in roles, really, that the public markets are playing and the private markets are playing. It used to be the private markets were where you went to bet speculative investments. Mm -hmm. This is where you went to get your risky venture capital exposure or your highly leveraged equity exposure. It was called an alternative asset class. Because you know you were meant to allocate maybe this small little sliver of your economy, and the the public markets is where you go to invest into bedrock companies that anchor the economy, household names, etc. That has changed. If you look at the companies that have been going public, the capital formation that's been occurring within the public markets, a lot of people are shocked when they dig into it, and they learn that only twenty percent of the companies that have been going public more recently have an earnings history. Okay, the vast majority 
are technology companies selling the dream or they're shell companies without financial substance. Those are the companies going public. There's a lot more speculation happening in the public markets these days. Meanwhile, the public, the private markets have been uh, increasingly relevant to owning the real economy. If you think about the food value chain, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the types of companies that are going public, right, in the food value chain? You have the ones that have a big brand and a network effect, right? Like a Grubhub or something along those lines, like that 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 is in the public eye and draws the interest of uh, public investors. Meanwhile, if you think about the rest of the food value chain, right? The agricultural businesses, um, uh, the the fertilizer uh, companies, and and crop protection protection companies that are out there, the logistics companies that are out there. A lot of them are not appealing to public markets right. investors because they don't have the sizzle, right? right. They and don't have. They're the also thing. they're not marketing to the end consumer, so the average person knows less. They about don't know them. about them. So interest, interestingly, a lot of those businesses are now owned by private markets firms. $10 trillion of assets that are uh, anchoring the economy. And so there's been this shift in roles where the private markets used to be very speculative, and now that's where you go to get exposure to the real economy. And the private markets used to be, you know, bedrock companies that anchor the economy. And now it's a technology index, effectively, for many investors. And I think that... Uh, isn't well known by a lot of uh, I- investors, and um, and uh, it's one of the things that's driving interest in our space by investors that haven't traditionally had access. Um, uh, that's one of the reasons why private investors, for example, are increasingly interested in private markets, is because that's the only way you can place that you can go to access certain sectors. So that raises a couple of really fascinating questions. The first is. Given that private markets were previously speculative, and now you're suggesting public markets are, the first question is, what does that mean in terms of how we value each of those two types of investments? And then the related question is, how dependent are private markets on public market valuations? Um, I think they're very closely linked in many regards. Um, There are some differences. Uh, the public markets did experience a lot more hype in mm-hmm. certain periods of time. And so um, a lot of people uh, look at the private markets and say, well, shouldn't there be a correction in the private markets that is on par with what we're seeing you know, in the public markets? And so let me just create a little bit of context for sure. some of the differences in valuation um, that, that have been out there uh, between you know, the, the 2018 time period and, uh, and 2021, the public markets experienced multiple expansion on an EV to EBITDA basis of about 11, 12 times historically. I think it went up to 18 times mm-hmm. at the peak and, and, and it's come down to 13 or 14 times or whatever it is uh, more recently, a pretty substantial kind of pullback. Over that same period of time, the private markets, uh, your average private markets company increased in value from about 11 times to about 12 times. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so you're not 
you know, we 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 pretty steady valuation. Not in every space, not in every sector, and not for every type of company. You do see some big valuations there, but on average, as an industry, our average company didn't participate in the in the hype um, necessarily fully that the the private markets experienced, and so it shouldn't surprise people that your average private markets company doesn't correct in value at the same. Uh, uh, level. Uh, in, in addition to that, the private markets has historically been pretty good at driving assets, aligning interests with management teams, uh, having a pretty compelling uh, a business case that they're uh, driving. And so, for example, our average portfolio company has had double-digit growth um, uh, over the past year, and that helps to offset some of the downward pressure that uh, that. Uh, you know the the markets bring. So so I want to get to the issue of alignment in a moment, but I have to re- follow up on what you just hinted at, which is why are the private markets so steady compared to the ups and downs, the multiple expansion and contraction that we see in public markets? And I know there may not be any definitive answer. What's your theory here? Well, you have um, a market that's driven by decisions by sophisticated investors to invest or to divest. Okay, you don't have a lot of fear-based selling right. going on within the private markets. Um, An advantage of not getting a print every tick, every minute, every constantly to, exactly. to freak people out. It's and and. Um, and, uh, and I think that is a big part of it. We're always going to be an asset class that puts emphasis on long-term performance over short-term liquidity. Mm-hmm. It just is what it is. So we don't feel pressure to sell things at all when the markets start to bounce around. Uh, and if uh, anything, there's a liquidity impediment to making those sort of decisions. The old line is you don't get a price on your house every minute of every day. If you did, you might get panicked out of it. You don't even have that option of of panic selling if you want in the vast majority of your holdings, I'm going to assume. Yeah. uh, Panic selling is rarely a thing within (laughs) private markets. And it is sometimes a thing in the public markets. And that's a big difference uh, with regards to how people think about their holdings uh, between the two asset classes. Hmm. That's that's really very intriguing. So let's talk a little bit about alignment. You have said we are fully aligned with our clients, and I think of you as having two sets of clients. One set are the outside investors who give you their capital to invest. The other set of clients are the companies you acquire and are partners with. How do you align your interest with these two diverse sets of clients? I think the Private markets is a fantastic um, asset class from an alignment of interest perspective. We win when our clients win, and uh, and and uh, and that comes from having our capital invested alongside theirs, and uh, having very strict requirements for performance before we get paid performance fees. And mm-hmm. I think that alignment of interest is something that is really really strong. In turn, we then create the same types of relationships with our management teams. So it goes all the way down uh, uh, the chain uh, with regards to alignment of interest. Um, 
Me- meaning the the portfolio companies, their interests are going to be determined by their performance exactly. as well. Exactly. So so from the investor to partners group to the portfolio companies, everybody uh, is aiming in the same place, and everybody gets paid exactly when when the results work for everybody. And we're benefit. a very client centric firm. You know, we talked a little bit about our Colorado campus mm-hmm. and how we've created a feel that's a little bit more like a factory feel. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a kid, I remember my, my dad ran a manufacturing facility and I remember being with him on the floor, um, you know, at the manager's window or whatever and, and him walking around that floor. And, and I had in my mind, you know, the feeling like there's no question in my mind who these people work for. Like he mm-hmm. walked that floor and he really, you know, drove it. And I always loved that visual of the manager's window, you know, in a factory. And so on our floor, we have client conference rooms that look out over our employees mm-hmm. that, uh, that represent a manager's window. And so the message to our team, the message to our people, is it's the people in that room that you work for. Those are the people that you report to. Those are the people that you owe something to. And uh, we've really tried to, to create that that sense of client centricity and alignment with our clients, not just in our documentation and with our incentives, uh, but also culturally within uh, the fabric of our firm. Quite, quite interesting. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So, so let's talk a little bit about this reallocation from public markets to private markets that you think is going to lead to the private market sector tripling over the next, let's call it, decade. Am I being uh, yep. too, so too conservative, right. or is that about right? Yeah, we'll so, see. We'll see how the environment plays into it, but mm-hmm. directionally, we think that that's correct. so. So, where is this going to come from? How much of this is going to be individual? How much of this is going to be institutional? And are we going to see 401ks offer the opportunity to make the sort of private equity investment? Yeah. Um, you know, I came from an interesting client meeting uh, this week, uh, Fortune 100 company, that is in the process of reclassifying some of their investment buckets. Mm-hmm. And they're actually going to take their long-term bond portfolio and blend it together with their private credit portfolio 
because they think that private credit offers better risk return in the current market environment and not less risk, et cetera. So they're, they're, they're thinking about opening up um, access to, uh, to uh, private credit out of this, uh, this portfolio. So, so institutional investors are thinking about how I think they can use private markets more effectively within their portfolio. And individual investors, we think, in many instances, can benefit to having access to a strong performing asset class like the private markets. Now, it's certainly not for everyone, right? The amount of allocation that people um, people uh, put into private markets certainly depends on people's risk tolerance. This is an illiquid asset class. Right. Um, we can do things as an industry to to make it more convenient and to create some degree of liquidity and in uh, in good times, but uh, this is always going to be an asset class again that prioritizes long term performance over near term liquidity, and so uh, it it depends on the investors' uh, desire to do that. But by and large, the investors that we talk to uh, are looking to uh, increase their allocations to private markets because it is such an important part of uh, of uh, their allocation. So so let's talk about private credit for a minute. Back when interest rates were at zero and the 10-year yielded practically nothing, um, we saw a lot of institutional interest in private credit. Hey, listen, we're getting some yield. There's an, uh, uh, there's an illiquidity uh, concern, but we know what our future liabilities are, and we can ladder that out so it wasn't a challenge yep. for a big institution. So the first question is, now that rates have come up quite a bit, Fed is just coming up on 5%, um, is there still the same demand for that sort of private credit when there is an alternative? You're no longer competing with you know, a 1.5% 10-year? How, how, how does that play in? I think the, the private credit industry has, um, has uh, really come into its own since this rate hike cycle began. And demand really? for uh, absolutely private credit has increased. Um, disproportionate to a lot of uh, uh, other asset types that are more dependent. And so if you, if you think about like the equity side, for example, I was sitting down with a client recently um, and, uh, and trying to illustrate the impact that this changing rate environment um, would have. And I pulled out an old model for an investment that they liked in particular and it was a 21% return that had been underwritten. <laughs> and here's the, here's the uh, assumptions that we had with regards to uh, leverage levels, with regards to uh, rate, et cetera. And I punched in the new environment. I just said, okay, that 6.7 times leverage, you're not going to get that anymore. Right. That, that's going to be more like four, four and a quarter, right? right? We changed that. And there was 250 basis points of return gone because of that, that uh, element. Okay, this... Uh, Cost of capital is no longer applicable. It's more like double that right. today. Um, and that brought it down by another 150 basis points or, or whatever. And um, and then uh, and then we took a look at, okay, now, you know, within private credit, you can lend at four, 4.25 times uh, EBITDA and gets, in some cases, a double-digit return doing that if you're kind of structuring solutions for uh, the right type of clients. Um, and then you have to wonder, you know, on the equity side, you really have to work 
right? Yeah. To, to generate that outperformance. And so on a relative value basis, there's a lot of investors that uh, that are finding private credit is a particularly attractive place uh, to invest right now. And we have a lot of a lot of very interesting dialogue with our clients about Spe- that. Especially considering the past decade, not counting 2022, but the decade prior to that, you saw 13, 14% a year in in US equities, which yep. is way over historical, historical 8% a year. Wouldn't surprise if you know five six percent a year six seven percent a year your your mean reverting especially in the face of of higher uh rates and yeah. and cost of capital wouldn't be outrageous to make those assumptions it, it wouldn't be outrageous and, and and what that means is you really have to pick your spots it used to be you know that that you know you could invest into a good grower and just assume the economy you know would would take care of some portion of the value creation strategy. Today, you have to be buying companies that are growing really disproportionately strong in order to go long uh, uh, equity. And so the average company that we invested to on the, uh, the the equity side was growing at double digit, growing its earnings by double digits. Um, and those are the type of businesses that you can continue to generate strong returns on. But it requires that thematic research to make sure you're getting your spots really well. And it also requires an ownership model that's quite intense to drive transformation. And on the credit side, there's a real opportunity today uh, to uh, invest at attractive returns. I see that in the investment committee every week. Huh, really interesting. One of the things we haven't talked about, if you're appealing more to individual investors, typically that comes along with regulation and compliance standards and oversight from the government. Something that the world of private markets really doesn't spend a lot of time with. The assumption is, hey, these are big, sophisticated investors making big investments into companies, and everybody here is is an adult, and so we don't need a paternalistic oversight. Once you bring in smaller, I'm not even saying mom and pop, but accredited investors or non-institutional investors, there's a different level of scrutiny that comes with that. How are private markets and private equity going to manage that sort of regulation? Yeah. So um, the industry, as it's expanded from a small niche industry years ago to an industry today already managing $10 trillion of assets, already a fiduciary for the funds of hardworking capital, um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, regulation has already increase substantially. Compliance needs have increased substantially uh, within our industry. And I have no doubt that that trend will continue. Um, uh, We continue to appeal, I think, to uh, particularly sophisticated investors, and that has to continue to be the case. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, This is uh, not an asset class that I think like retail, retail investors um, uh, are, are going to allocate to even in that fund that you mentioned previously, where it's you know a minimum of fifty thousand or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is. I think our average investor there's two hundred thousand, so it's a it's a sophisticated investor that's that's uh, allocating. Uh, it's not a Robin Hood to, investor. It's not absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, if you think about four hundred one k plans, for mm-hmm. example, the place that our asset class is going to be most relevant for the near term is in the defined contribution portions 
of that 401k market where you still have a sophisticated portfolio manager that's mm-hmm. putting those portfolios together. I don't think that anybody in the near term expects within their 401k allocation to be able to go in there and bounce to a big private equity uh, fund. That's not going to be the case. Um, uh, but you know, we are going to attract demand from the, from uh, from a increasingly individual set of investors, and that's going to come with regulation. And huh. the big firms will be able to deal with that. So, so I have to ask one question uh, related to the interest rate environment. You mentioned the Darwinian struggle, the changing environment, how how zero cap cost of capital was a tailwind before. Now, rising rates are a headwind. Um, you've talked a bit in public about the Federal Reserve suggesting you think they're going to overshoot on the rate hikes. You have a unique perspective to observe this through your 100-plus portfolio companies. Tell us why you think the Fed is going to end up going too far and over-tightening. Well, I think it's possible. Um, the, the Fed had a choice of either taking a big ratchet all at once, Mm -hmm. shocking the market, and changing behavior, or doing it slowly and incrementally. I mean, it was a fast rate hike, obviously, but but 75 basis points. The first one, anyway, was a little shocking. Yeah, the the, the first one, 75, but but really doing something shocking to change behavior Mm -hmm. of consumers, of people that are out participating in the market, or making these incremental changes that are more or less in line with consensus on what the Fed should be doing. And they've chosen to go in a more or less consensus-driven pattern mm-hmm. for most of the, the changes. And so what that means is opposed to shocking the market and changing behavior through setting a tone up front, uh, they need to wait for the impacts of those rate hikes to flow through. And that just takes some time. Right. So I have no doubt that... Uh, that uh, it will take some time for the full impact of many of these hikes to be felt and to fully change behavior. And therefore, there could be the potential of oversteering or overshooting uh, as a result of that. Curveball question. You guys are very much the anti-Wall Street, both in location and by design. You almost ended up at Lehman Brothers. Did you, you know, did you dodge a bullet there? What would have happened if you ended up going into Wall Street proper, given your current philosophy? Yeah, I absolutely dodged a bullet there, um, and uh, and I'm grateful every day, actually, that I landed in a place, in a culture um, that is thoughtful, right? That is uh, thinking towards the future. That's that's uh, a little bit more humble and able to navigate an environment as opposed to getting lost in in ego. Um, I absolutely uh, am grateful every day that I uh, dodged a bullet there. Uh, no question. Barry. Good, great answer. I know I only have you for so much time, so let me jump to my favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Starting with. What do you, what do you do for entertainment out in Colorado? What have you been streaming and watching uh, over the past couple of years? Tell us what what's kept you and the family um, entertained. So my wife owns the remote at home, <laughs> and so if we're streaming something, it's usually something about British baking or Indian dating or something along those lines. Uh-huh. Um, I really love this Mandalorian series and getting into that. Uh, I think I think season three comes out later this year. Yeah, 
yeah huh. looking forward to that. That, that that's intriguing tell us about some of your mentors who helped to shape your career um, well, I think my parents had a big influence. Uh, my dad was a business person, and uh, and I uh, had a tremendous work ethic. Um, uh, my mother's an unbelievably loyal person and helped to, to inspire that in me. I've got a couple of partners in particular. One, uh, Walter Keller, who uh, he is just an elephant memory, right? Uh-huh. Every way that we've screwed up as a firm, he's got it in his head and he brings it up and he keeps us out of trouble to the point where actually close to my office in the campus for everybody to see, everybody on the floor, I have all of the lessons learned of the firm, every way that we've lost money. And that's largely a download out of Walter's head for uh, the rest of our colleagues to kind of understand the lessons that we've had over time. And he's been a, a great mentor. And uh, our, our three founders have all been, uh, in their own way, uh, real mentors to me as well. Tell us about some of your favorite books and, and what you're reading right now. So I just finished uh, Bono's um, memoir, uh, uh, Surrender. I usually read something a little bit more light and a little bit more serious. Uh, there's also a book uh, called The Weirdest People in the World uh, that was a really interesting read. Um, I recall hearing about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I've got a couple in the chamber. Um, uh, one my wife gave me that's called This Is Your Mind on Plants. Um, and then uh, one called Chip War uh, by Peter Miller that I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to getting into. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in a career in either investing or private markets? Yeah, so I, I do spend quite a bit of time with our hires, our new hires, and I think we're going to hire 55 kids out of school this year wow. directly into our analyst program where they rotate across our different things. And I always set the tone first day of training when they come in, and one of the things that I tell them is that this is no longer a young asset class, right? Huh. This is an asset class that's been around for a little while. And it might have been the fast money lure of doing deals and kind of transactions that, 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 that got you interested into this space. This is an asset class that you can have a tremendous impact as an owner, but you've got to be prepared to roll up your sleeves and work. So we're spending, sending many of our young professionals to work in our portfolio, right, to get experience, how to run projects and how to run businesses and uh, uh, send them to work for our CEOs as much as they spend time um, working you know, within our halls. And I think that's something that uh, young professionals need to be aware of. The, the, the needs um, of young talent are changing. Get some operating experience. And our final question, what do you know about the world of private equity investing, buyouts, private markets today that you wish you knew 20 plus years or so ago when you were first getting started? I would say that uh, investing is a team sport. Hmm. I always maybe thought about it growing up as more of an individual pursuit. You know, I had a client recently who pulled out my track record. They were in a due diligence session. They said, Dave, this is a fantastic track record. What's the secret of your success? And I thought oh, that's a that's an ego affirming <laughs> question, right? You kind of well, you, you like to hear that uh, to some degree. You get that little tingle up your spine. Um, and I thought about how to answer it, and what I told her was, um, what you don't see on that list is company A, company B, company C, D, E. Those are all companies that I had under exclusivity at some point during my career. But my partners, 
people that used to be my bosses that are today my partners wouldn't let me invest. Um, and um, I'm telling you, if you average together those investments that I didn't make, together with the investments that we did make, I would have a much more average track record. Those investments were done by other firms. I've gone back and looked at it. Uh, they were not as successful as the ones that did happen. And so surrounding yourself with partners that are going to challenge you and push you and cover your blind spots is something that's really important. There's a lot of investment firms that get founded by an individual and they have a type of transaction that they're known for and they build a financial product around themselves and they build a team around themselves. And that type of a strategy works until it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, and we at Partners Group have really tried to build a culture where it's about the debate, right? It's about um, the fight. It's about challenging each other. It's about uh, diversity of perspectives um, uh, when you're making those investment decisions. And, uh, and that is an absolutely critical part to investing that far too many people think about and, uh, and talk about. Thank you, David, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with David Layton. He is the CEO of Partners Group. If you enjoy this conversation, well, you can check out any of our previous 500 or so such discussions we've had over the past eight plus years. You can find those at YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you like to get your podcast from. Uh, be sure and check out our daily reading list. You can find that at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can follow all of the Bloomberg podcasts on Twitter at podcasts. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Justin Milner is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Sean Russo is our head of research. Paris Wold is my producer. And an extra special thank you this week goes out. If you like the new music that is our audio signature, uh, we just changed that. Thank you so much to Leo Citrin, who did a great job on creating that. And thank you to Jackie Kessler Lubliner, who helped us with our new Masters in Business artwork. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.